everybody. Um, Our reading this morning is taken from Isaiah 53, um, from verse 1 to 6. Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 6. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Thank you, Brenda, very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. Uh, A very warm welcome to you, and especially if you're with us for the first time, we're absolutely delighted to have you with us. Just a couple of notices before we begin. Some of you know that we've uh, been in exciting discussions with another church in Claremont, and Michael and I met with their leadership during the week, and I'm delighted to report that everything is moving in the right direction. I think their leadership are as excited as we are about this. Um, Some of you know we spent a whole year looking for a better building without success, and then all of a sudden the Lord seems to have dropped something Uh, way beyond our wildest dreams into our lap. And all things being equal, we should start services uh, in the merged congregation around Easter time next year. Do please keep that in your prayers. And then uh, secondly, to say that um, we have a carol service uh, happening this evening in our home at five o'clock. Carols around the Christmas tree, mince pies, and all that sort of thing. If you have the appetite and inclination, we'd love to see you. Uh, If you don't know the address, come and see me afterwards. And then lastly, just to say this is our last service of the year. Uh, We're taking a short break, and the next service in this building uh, will be on January the 14th. Good. Well, that's all the notices. Um, It'll be an enormous help to me if you can please have Isaiah 53 open in front of you. And you were also given, I believe a sealed mystery Christmas gift when you arrived at the door. Don't open it yet. I'll tell you when to do so. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Well, our gracious and very loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which points us to your Son, the Lord Jesus, because it is in him that we find strength for the weak, compassion for the needy, and hope for the hurting. 
please draw near to us by your spirit, through your word, that we might see Jesus this morning and find the help that we need. And we ask in his name. Amen. Um, Archibald Brown was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the early 1900s. Um, He was actually a remarkable man and greatly used by God. Uh, Indeed, in the space of just five years, the congregation grew from 150 to 2,500 at every service, so just a little bit bigger than us. But um, things didn't always go smoothly. Uh, One local man became extremely angry when his wife got converted. Um, He didn't really understand what conversion was, but he was pretty sure it wasn't good because his wife started to change. And in fact, he hated what he was seeing so much that he decided he was going to kill Pastor Brown. So one Sunday morning, he loaded his revolver and he found a seat in the front row of the gallery and he waited until the sermon when the pastor would be standing still in the pulpit straight in front of him. But uh, just before the sermon, uh, Archibald Brown read Isaiah 53 and made one or two comments about it, and the gun was never fired. And uh, after the service, the man went to the vestry, and he handed the loaded revolver to Archibald Brown, and he said, I was going to kill you. But now I find your message has got hold of me. Conversion is not what I thought it was. Something very similar happened to a lady called Dr. Etta Linneman. Uh, She was professor of New Testament at the University of Marburg in Germany in the 1970s. And um, she was very well known, actually, at the time for her liberal views on the Bible and the authority of Scripture. But in 1978, when she'd already been a professor for a number of years, she was wonderfully converted to Christ. Uh, Because her eyes had been opened, shortly afterwards she contacted all her students, asking them to destroy all of her previous written work. She said that everything she'd written up to that time was rubbish. What an astonishing thing for a professor of the New Testament to say. But she'd come to realize that Jesus wasn't who she thought he was. That's the kind of situation we have in our passage this morning. The repentant people of God, Israel, are saying, we were wrong about the servant of the Lord. We made a mistake, and we want to set the record straight. How do we get there? Well, the verses that we're looking at are just a part of a song or a poem that runs from chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through to chapter 53, verse 12. Um, It's the fourth and the last song in a series about a character called the servant. And uh, in this poem... The servant is introduced to us by God himself in the very first verse, chapter 52, verse 13. 
God says, see, my servant will act wisely. Wisely in the Old Testament means successfully. Now, the, the New Testament very clearly identifies Isaiah's servant as Jesus. And uh, in our series, we've already seen that these songs are remarkably accurate and detailed forecasts of the life and work of Christ 700 years before he was even born. Now, the the key to understanding the message of this particular poem is to notice its design, because this is wonderful Hebrew poetry at its very best. And uh, to help you, I've given you your Christmas present, uh, a little handout, and you can now open it and have a look at it, because it gives you a bird's-eye view of the design of this servant's song. Can we all see it? Uh, You'll notice, oh, just wait till it's been handed out. Thanks, Mariano. You'll notice that the poem consists of five sections of three verses each. And in Hebrew literature, the big idea is very often in the middle, and that's what we find here. So we work from the outside towards the middle. So can you see the two outer sections, that is to say section 1, section 5, celebrate the same theme, namely the servant's victory through suffering. Then working inwards, sections 2 and 4 give explicit information about the nature, or if you like, the details of the servant's suffering. And so by this very clever and careful design, our focus is drawn to the middle section, verses 4 to 6, which contains the main message. Now, on another occasion, we'll try and do a series on the other bits, but this morning we're just going to focus on sections 2 and 3 so that we can all get the big idea of the poem clear in our minds. Because if we can do that, we'll start to see Christmas in its correct context. If you read the poem a couple of times, it becomes clear that the repentant people of God are fessing up. They're coming clean. They're saying something like this. We misunderstood the servant of the Lord, and we don't want you to make the same mistake. So where did they go wrong? Well, these verses tell us that they went wrong in two areas. First, there was the servant they didn't value. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the suffering they didn't understand. So let's look at the first of those. The servant they didn't value, verses 1 to 3. Now, the picture in these verses is that the arrival of the servant has triggered a massive crisis of expectation. Uh, The other songs, you'll remember, have spoken about the servant being chosen by God, 
to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So just glance back in your Bible for a moment to chapter 52, verse 10. And uh, you can see that this salvation being taken to the ends of the earth promised to be a spectacular event. Can we all see chapter 52, verse 10 in our Bibles? The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Some of you might know that that phrase, the arm of the Lord, is the the Bible's way of talking about the saving power of Almighty God. So you may remember that when God rescued Israel from captivity in Egypt with tremendous signs and wonders, he did it with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So the point here is that when the servant brings God's salvation, everyone will know about it. It'll be standing room only. Therefore, it's not surprising, is it, that people had certain expectations about what God's servant would be like. I mean, if he's going to be up to this, well, surely he must be someone pretty impressive. So what was he like? Well, I think verse 1 gives us a sense of the anticlimax they felt when the servant finally arrived. Verse 1, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, whoever would have thought that the arm of the Lord would be revealed in this astonishing way? They weren't expecting God's saving power to look like this. Why were people talking like that? Well, when Jesus came, the people of God had to come to terms with at least four difficulties. Firstly, there was his obscurity, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. You see, Jesus wasn't the kind of prominent, high-born person that you would expect God to use for such an important mission. He was as unpromising as a root growing out of dry ground. There was nothing about him that raised people's expectations. After all, he was born to a virgin no one had ever heard of, in an outbuilding for animals, in a town that was a byword for depravity. So his background was seriously obscure. Second, there was his commonness, or if you like, his ordinariness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, meaning that he had None of the magnetism that people expect from royalty. You know, he lacked the star quality that puts royalty and rock stars on the front pages of glossy magazines. I mean, how could anybody hope to start a worldwide movement without that kind of pizzazz? Third, there was his isolation, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. 
And of course, when Jesus came, the top people in Jewish society, the thought leaders, the opinion formers, well, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They were thinking to themselves, well, look, you know, if you're on the wrong side of the establishment, how can you possibly hope to accomplish anything worthwhile? And then fourth, of course, there was the suffering. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So you see, as people watched him being led out to the place of crucifixion, some may have felt sorry for him, but how could somebody who suffered in the way that Jesus did possibly help other people? Now, those were some of the observations they made, but then they went one step further and they made a judgment. They put all those observations together and at the end of verse 3, have a look at it, they made an assessment. We esteemed him not. Meaning, we didn't value him. Of course, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to get people wrong. I guess most of us will do that several times in the course of our lives. In my last year at Cambridge, while we were training for the university boat race, there was one particular student who uh, entered selection trials for the crew. He was an enormous guy. He was six foot five. And he was far bigger and stronger than the rest of us. But there was so much of him that he was sort of gangly and uncoordinated. So so the coaches didn't value him. They didn't select him. Which was seriously unfortunate because five years later he won a gold medal at the Los Angeles Olympics. That kind of wrong assessment is terribly easy to make. And of course it can be embarrassing. But with Jesus the servant, there's another critical factor to consider. Because however much evidence we have about Jesus, we will never, never, never value him as we should without God's help. Why do I say that? Please keep a finger in Isaiah 53 and turn quickly in your Bible to John chapter 12. The Gospel of John chapter 12. Uh, We're going to pick it up at verse 37. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 37. If you've got a church Bible, I think it's on page 760. Verse 37, are we all there? John writes, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now pause on that, stay there. He's saying that Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, spoke about the Jews not believing in him. Now, why didn't they believe? Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe, 
Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, God has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Notice verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Do you see? See, Israel's blindness was God's judgment. They didn't value Jesus because God had blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. Now that speaks directly to us this morning. Because you see, it's possible to be in church every week. You can find yourself in the situation where you know the story of Christmas and Easter backwards. You know all the facts about Jesus. But when push comes to shove, Jesus doesn't grip you. He doesn't stir your affections. He doesn't influence your choices. And after many years of church going, well, actually, your life is no different to anyone else's. You see, the truth for someone like that is that it doesn't really make any difference to you whether Jesus lived, died, and rose again or not. Because in your heart, you have said, I don't value him. I don't think he really matters. Now, my friend, if that is where you are this morning, you're in the right place. But the message of John chapter 12 is that you need help. Because you can't change your attitude to Jesus by yourself. doesn't matter how clever you are. You've got to have God's help. And you can start by doing two things before you leave this building today. First, you must start by asking God to forgive you for not valuing his son. Nothing will change until you've done that. And second, you must ask God to open your eyes so that you can see Jesus for who he really is. I can't think of a better time than Christmas Eve for you to be doing both those things. Someone might be thinking, well, why should I do that? Well, that brings us to the second mistake that Israel made, which is the suffering they didn't understand. Verses 4 through 6. Let me try and summarize this. You see, on the first Good Friday, the Orthodox Jew looked at Jesus on the cross and drew the wrong conclusion. He imagined that Jesus was being punished for his own sins. Now that is the picture in the second half of verse 4. Can you see it? We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Now, the reason that they thought like that was because of a passage in Deuteronomy which says that if somebody was hanged on a tree, that was a sign they were under the curse of God. And that, of course, is why the cross was such a massive stumbling block to the Jews in the first century. 
And you just picture the tension here. You see, the Christians were saying, here is your Messiah. And the Jews said, you've got to be joking. So verse 4 starts by setting the record straight and giving us the true picture. Just look at it. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Meaning that Jesus willingly accepted them as his own. Yes, he, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, but it was our sorrows and it was our infirmities, not his. He carried them for us and he did it willingly. You see, the point is that if you and I are going to learn from Israel's mistake and understand the suffering of Jesus correctly, we must start by seeing the truth of our condition. So what then are our sorrows? Most of them are listed in verse 5, and you'll remember from that little uh, scheme, schematic I gave you at the beginning. Verse 5 is the middle verse in the middle section. So that means it's the focus of the whole poem. And that means that as we read verse 5, dear brothers and sisters, we are standing on very holy ground and we need to consider its message carefully. Verse 5 says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. It's a fancy word. It's a rather polite way of putting it because the idea behind the word in the original is willful rebellion. Sounds dramatic when I put it like that. Sounds even violent. But that kind of rebellion can be a very quiet, sophisticated sort of thing. Uh, It's the rebellion of the child who looks you straight in the eye and then gets on quietly doing precisely what you've told them not to do. And it's what we adults do when we excuse our rebellion against God as little weaknesses, minor shortcomings. Well, they're more serious than that. They're acts of willful rebellion. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. That's not all. Verse 5 says that he was crushed for our iniquities. Now, that is not talking about our individual sins. It's describing the, the bentness or the twistedness of our fallen nature. I don't know if anybody here has ever played bowls. But if you go to the Constantia Bowls Club or Kelvin Grove Bowls Club or any other bowls club, you'll see that the wooden bowl they use has got a built-in bias. doesn't matter how skillful the bowler is. He can never bowl it straight. And you and I, in the same way, have a built-in bias away from holiness towards selfishness. But praise God, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. But then there's our alienation. Middle of verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace 
was upon him. You see, before Jesus came, none of us had peace with God. None of us. You might have thought that you were at peace with everybody, but the truth is, before Jesus came, we were alienated from God and from our fellow man because of our wickedness. And that's why there's a place elsewhere in Isaiah where God says, there is no peace for the wicked. But again, you know, because the servant has stepped forward and taken the punishment that was due to me and to you, Christians do enjoy peace with God. And the result is that Almighty God is no longer our judge. He's my father. He's your father. And then there's our brokenness. End of verse 5. By his wounds we are healed. You see, the truth about it, uh, dear brothers and sisters, is that our sin wounds us. Uh, Yes, it hurts other people, but when I sin against you, it hurts me. And those wounds mess up the way that we relate to God, the way that we relate to neighbor, and the way that we think about ourselves. And the devil piles in, has a field day, and he deceives us into believing that our lives can never be any different. And that, of course, is why so many people take refuge in drugs, uh, alcohol, illicit sex, idolatry of some kind. But you see, our lives can be different. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, the healing starts and we begin to see how very precious we are to Almighty God, that he values us. And suddenly we see new possibilities for our lives that we never even dreamed of before. By his wounds, we are healed. And then lastly, there's our lostness in verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. No exceptions, all of us. How does the silly sheep go astray? I don't know if you, I'm probably talking to an expert farmer, you probably know better than I do. But, you know, the sheep just has his head down and he's munching on this clump of grass and then he munches on the next clump of grass and so on and so on and so on. And when he looks up, where's the flock? He's got no idea. And often lostness happens gradually and slowly like that. Or it could be a sudden thing. The sheep's startled by the backfiring of a car and it bolts. So the straying sheep in scripture, you see, is a picture of the aimlessness and the silliness of sin. And that is another aspect of the truth of our condition without Christ. God has taken all of that. Everything that makes us less than fully human Everything that diminishes us, separates us from God, and he's put it all on Jesus. So his death wasn't an accident. God willed it. And God wills that our condition be dealt with through the suffering of his servant for us. But Israel didn't get it. They didn't see it. 
They didn't see that Jesus suffered for them. And, of course, we face exactly the same challenge this morning. You see, your condition, all of the sorrows of verse 5, won't change for you or for me until we see that Jesus suffered for us personally. Which means you've got to, in a sense, be able to put yourself into verse 5 before his suffering will do you any good at all. Many people never reach that point. They know some of the facts, but they reach the wrong conclusion. Let me try and illustrate that for you. A few years ago, a newspaper in the United States reported the dramatic incident of a woman driving home from work on the freeway. And she was just driving along, minding her own business. She looked in her rearview mirror and saw one of those enormous trucks that they have in in America, far bigger than the ones we have here, right on her tail. She was alarmed. She thought it was just carelessness by the truck driver, so she speeded up. But when she speeded up, the truck driver speeded up as well, stayed right on her tail. She became really worried. And as soon as she could, she turned off the freeway. The truck also left the freeway, right behind her. She turned onto a main street. The truck ran through a red light to stay right on her bumper. By now, she was, of course, panicking. And uh, as soon as she could, she turned into a service station, dashed out of the door of her car, screaming for help. Well, I guess we might have done the same, mightn't we? The trucker pulled up behind her, jumped out of his cab, ran to the back door of her car and pulled out a man who'd been lying on the back seat of her car. And it turned out he was a convicted rapist and she never knew it. She didn't know he was there. Now, here's the point. The woman thought she was right but she made completely the wrong assessment. She was running away from her rescuer. She was dashing away from her deliverer. She didn't assess things properly at all. And you and I won't either until we see what the servant has done and that it has been done for us. Someone who understood this better than most was the Dutch painter Rembrandt. And I hope a picture is going to appear on the screen. There it is. That's um, a copy of one of his masterpieces. It's called The Raising of the Cross. And as you can see, it, it, it shows soldiers raising the cross of Jesus so that it stands upright. But notice, can you see in the painting, there's a man at the feet of Jesus wearing a blue painter's beret. Now, obviously, he's not a soldier from the first century, is he? And yet there he stands, lifting the cross with the others. Who is it? Well, it's Rembrandt. Why did Rembrandt place himself at the feet of Jesus as Jesus is being hoisted up and crucified? 
Well, for no other reason than to tell the world that Rembrandt saw himself as a sinner and that it was his sins, like mine and like yours, that sent Christ to the cross. And you see, friends, if you're going to see the truth about the servant's suffering, you've got to be able to do what Rembrandt did. And you've got to see that the suffering was for you. So this morning I want to end by doing something a little different. Normally I would end the sermon by praying for us, for you. But today I want to give you an opportunity to do what Rembrandt did and to make verse 5 personal. So the words of verse 5 are now going to appear on the screen. And uh, we've modified it into a personal prayer. So that instead of our and we and us, we've replaced those with me and my and I. Let me read it through once so that you get the hang of it. And then we might stand and pray it together. But Jesus was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him, and by his wounds I am healed. Well, let's stand. And uh, if this is true for you, or whether you would like it to be true for you for the first time this morning, why don't you pray this prayer with me from your heart? Together. But Jesus was pierced for my transgressions, He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him, and by his wounds I am healed. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, do please remain standing, because I think we're going to sing.